Okay, we're in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. We're in this long, ongoing discussion that Jesus is having with these people in Capernaum, some of whom had followed him over on boats from Bethsaida, where he fed the multitudes with five loaves and a few fishes. He's giving them some very deep theological information. He's been talking about himself as a true bread who came down from heaven and then likening, likening himself unto the manna that God gave the children of Israel in the wilderness. However, as we will see today, Jesus points out to the people, those people who ate the manna still died. But he's telling them, if you eat of me the bread of life, you will never die. So we're going to pick it up in verse 45. Um, it is written in the prophets, be the Old Testament, Jesus is referring to here, and they shall be all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And again, from our perspective, 2,000 years later, many of us having spent years, months, years, studying God's word, we can very easily see what Jesus is talking about here. Not so easy for those people back then. Let's pray. Father God, we lift up this time in your word. We ask you to speak to our hearts, increase our insights and understanding into the words of Christ. Lord, for his words are the words of life. We ask your blessing upon this teaching, this study now in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus tells them, and again, not surprisingly, Jesus is always referencing the Old Testament, the prophets, and so forth, the very foundation upon which Christianity is based. That's why you often hear the term Judeo-Christian beliefs, Judeo-Christian values, which really flies in the face of those who are, you know, replacement theology folks who believe God is done with Israel. They don't count anymore. Isn't it interesting uh, and by the way, I think about two-thirds of the American church is in that camp where they, uh, in fact, they, they favor the Palestinians. They think Israel are, are aggressors and oppressors and so forth. And yet God is the one who put Israel back in the land after 2,000 years. And so for those who say, no, no, the church, the New Testament church has replaced Israel as the apple of God's eye. No, they are the apple of God's eye. They always have been. They always will be. And if God has replaced them and they no longer are relevant, why is the whole world focused on them just about every day? <laughs> Very interesting, right? 
So anyway, Jesus says, it's written in the prophets, they shall be taught by God. Isaiah 54, 13, all your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Now, in keeping with what we talked about last week, how many of you remember what we talked about in terms of children, bringing them to church, exposing them to the gospel, how important that is? All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and I would add this, unless you don't allow them to be taught by the Lord. And that's what's happening with a lot of people today. Jeremiah 31, 34, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, and I will remember their sin, I will remember no more. Now this is actually... Speaking of the millennial kingdom of Christ, when Jesus will be present, physically present on the earth, we will be by then immortal, ruling and reigning with Christ. And so in that context, no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Because at the end of the tribulation... You've read the parable, Matthew 28, the sheep and the goats, when Christ returns, any surviving non-believers on the earth at the end of the tribulation, and between two-thirds and three-fourths of the earth's population will be gone by then, some raptured, some dying through disease, through viruses, pandemics, and so forth, most likely nuclear war, the population will be greatly reduced which is what Satan wants. That's what the globalists want. The uh, post-human group want. The transhuman group and so forth. They all want that, and guess what? They're going to get it. But those who remain at the end of the tribulation, <clears throat> this is another reason. There's so many reasons why I believe in the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. And again, we're in the minority with that, but that's okay. I, I'm fine with being in the minority. If you study the Bible, you find that rarely, if ever, was the majority right. But another reason, I believe it is this. So when, according to Matthew 28, the, the parable of the sheep and the goats, when Christ returns and we come with him, the surviving mortals on the earth, there will be two groups, believers non-believers Jesus is going to cast the non-believers out they will not be allowed to participate in the millennial kingdom here on earth the surviving believers will be allowed to stay and they will be the ones who repopulate the earth the believing mortals but if the rapture doesn't happen until the end of the tribulation there wouldn't be any mortals left to repopulate the earth because we would all be immortal. In other words, those on the earth, surviving believers, would be caught up to meet us, with us in the air and the Lord, and they would be transformed. There would be no more mortals. So to me, that pretty much seals the deal. There will be people saved during the tribulation, without a doubt. In fact, I just heard of all people, very controversial figure, Alex Jones, but he is a Christian, and he talks about the Lord all the time on his program. He's kind of radical. 
unlike me. <laughs> but he said the very same thing that I've been saying for years, that he believes the greatest revival in history will happen during the tribulation. And I've said it many times. If there's anything that will trigger, it's not going to be all this hocus-pocus from these guys on TV, let me tell you that. All these dominion theology, replacement theology guys, they teach kingdom now, that we are going to usher in the millennial kingdom on earth, that we're going to convert everybody. That's a bunch of hogwash. That's totally unbiblical. And it gets people pumped up so they'll give money. If there's any event within the last 2,000 years since the first coming of Christ that could result in a worldwide revival, it would be the rapture of the church. So people think, well, why do we deserve to escape the tribulation? We don't. How many of you here today deserve to be saved at all? We don't deserve it. It's grace. We're saved by grace through faith. We don't deserve forgiveness. We don't deserve salvation. And we don't deserve to miss the tribulation. But I, I heard another guy the other day, really good prophecy speaker, big fan of Chuck Missler. I don't know his whole background, but he was actually on with Alex Jones talking about all these things, end times. But he made the same mistake I've heard so many people make, and I've got to get some water. They say, and he used the same word, persecution. Why would any generation of believers on the earth deserve to escape persecution when Christians have been persecuted from time immemorial? In fact, God's people, all the way back to Cain and Abel, have been persecuted. Because the tribulation is not about persecution. It's about wrath. Have you read your Bible? It's called the wrath of God. It's the final outpouring of God's wrath on planet Earth. And God says he has not appointed his people to suffer wrath. It's not about persecution. We get that every day to one degree or another, at least if you let your Christianity show. I just read the figures. I can't. It was thousands upon thousands of Christians who have been martyred in this past year. It's always been going on. That's not the point of the tribulation. The point of the tribulation is twofold. To judge an unbelieving world. Have you ever heard of Noah's flood? To judge an unbelieving world. I think we're pretty much there. We're pretty close to the time of Noah. Tells us in Genesis 6, the thoughts uh, of man's hearts, his actions, were only evil all the time. Uh, we, we can't get much closer. The second reason for the tribulation is the final restoration of Israel. Now we know that more Jewish people are becoming believers in Jesus Christ every day, but as a whole, the Jewish world, whether it be in Israel, in America, we know they're scattered all over the whole world. As a whole, Judaism, the Jewish people, have not embraced Jesus Christ as their Messiah, but they will. And that's the other reason for the tribulation. It's unfortunate that for so many of us, be you Jew or Gentile, sometimes it takes a lot of testing and suffering for us to finally 
fall on our knees and acknowledge God. And that's the purpose of the tribulation. God loves the Jews. And those whom he loves, he chastens, okay? All right, that was my freebie for today. The extra, no extra charge part kind of came early today. So he says, it is written in the prophets, they shall be taught by God. And it really ties directly into Jesus' previous statement that we finished with last week. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I told you last week, I pray that for my loved ones, anyone I'm concerned about every day, Father, please draw them to Jesus by your Holy Spirit. They shall be taught by God. And sometimes we think it's our responsibility to convince people to receive Christ. It's not. It's the Holy Spirit's job. It is our job to tell them. But God is the one who penetrates their hearts and brings them to what I call a saving faith. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And then Luke, uh, John 14, 26, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, Jesus says, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. <coughs> so one of the jobs of God's Holy Spirit is to teach us. So when you read your Bible, pray. I say, God, please send your Holy Spirit to teach me, to give me insight and understanding. And then if you feel like you're getting something that may not sound quite right or doesn't line up, you, you, the best commentary on the Bible, said my pastor, Pastor Chuck Smith, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Okay? All right. <clears throat> Then we go on here. We're still in verse 45. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So those who truly listen to the voice of God will know that Jesus truly is the Messiah and they will embrace him as Lord and Savior. So if you run across somebody who claims to believe in God but they reject or renounce Jesus, they're not hearing from the right God. Because the true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh, the great I Am, if you're listening to His voice, He will make it clear and plain to you that His Son, Jesus Christ, is your Savior. Then He goes on, verse 46, Not that anyone has seen the Father, except He who is from God, he has seen the Father. So, no one clothed in, in mortality. That's a, we, we live in mortal bodies, right? These bodies were not designed to last forever. They are temporary. Anyone clothed in mortality, no one clothed in mortality may see the Father and live. He lives in unapproachable light. He's a fiery God. That's why we need our immortal, imperishable, incorruptible bodies that we will receive at the rapture or the resurrection, whichever happens first. As evidenced by the previous verses, 
to be taught by God is to see him through spiritual eyes. No one has seen the Father. Jesus is obviously speaking here with your physical eyes, okay? Here's what God said to Moses in Exodus 33:20. We know God, Moses went up on Mount Sinai and met with God, received the Ten Commandments and so forth, but God tells him, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And so we know that God allowed Moses to kind of see him kind of from the backside as he was passing by, but never to look into his face. John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him or made him known. And so Jesus tells these folks here in Capernaum, the only one that has seen him, it says, except he who is from God, speaking of himself, he has seen the Father. So Jesus is the eyewitness of the reality of God the Father. He is the mediator. The Bible tells us there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who is fully man and fully God. So the one who came down from heaven, Jesus. This is another way of Jesus confirming his origins. He's been telling them, I came down from heaven. This is another way of him confirming his origins from God, from heaven, and also indicating his equality with God. We talked about the Trinity last week. If you ever miss uh, one of the, the services, one of the teachings, you should be able to find them on YouTube. Are we still getting onto YouTube? Or are we getting knocked off? Or what's the status? We are. Also, Facebook Live. And I don't know about our own website, how that one's doing. We're not, we're not posting videos on there, though, are we? Just the audio? Both, but we're not totally up to date on that, right? So to get the latest ones, either YouTube or Facebook Live, also for those who find themselves... Stuck at home sometimes, we're on Roku. I don't remember the channel. What's, is it 316? Roku channel 316 if you have a Roku device. Okay. Let's move on to verse 47. Most assuredly, I say to you, and when Jesus says this, it can sometimes translated in various translations, truly, truly, or very truly. So Jesus is telling the people this is the absolute truth. It just adds extra emphasis to what he's telling them. Pay attention. This is very important. This is the real deal. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, and you know, and that's tricky right there because there are a lot of people who say they believe. In fact, I just read an article the other day. I, I can't even believe this, actually, to tell you the truth, but it was like something like 80% of people in America, believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Did anybody see that? Roland, did you see that? I thought, really? That doesn't sound right. There's something shady there. But anyway, you'll find that a lot more people claim to believe in him than ones who actually do. Why? Because they don't believe in him for who he really is. They believe in him for who they think he is or who they think he ought to be or who, what somebody else has told them to believe. So when it says, Jesus says, he who believes in me, he's talking about believing in all that he is and claims to be. 
the one and only Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the great I Am, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Emmanuel, God with us. The list goes on and on, doesn't it? Of all the attributes of Jesus Christ. But you can't pick and choose. Either you believe in him for all that he says he is, or you don't truly believe in him. But how do we get to that place? This is going to take us back to something we previously discussed also. We start with acknowledging him as Lord and Savior and go from there. 2 Peter 3.18 Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We don't know all there is to know when we get saved, do we? We don't even know all that we, there is to know when we die and go to heaven. It's a lifelong process. We are to grow. That's why we're here today. That's why, you know, some people think, oh, that's so legalistic to say you have to go to church and you have to go to women's Bible study and you have to go to... It's not legalistic. We talked last week about, and we'll hit it again today, spirit, spiritual food. Jesus, our manna, our bread from heaven, our spiritual food. But if we're going to grow, and that's God's will, that's his purpose for us, his intention, because we've also talked about this, when we're born again, we're baby Christians, right? What do you do with a baby? You feed it, you nurture it, you clothe it, you help it to grow up to be strong and healthy, right? That's how it is with us spiritually. What happens if you don't do those things for a baby? At the very least, they will be malnourished, unhealthy. At the worst, they will die. Is that correct? They will wither and die. And I would propose to you the reason that many people who started off seemingly strong in their faith have faded away is because they didn't do the things that they needed to do to grow in the grace and knowledge of the, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yeah, you can be saved and never go to church, but how healthy will you be as a believer? And will you stay with God? Well, you know, we, we've talked about this in recent uh, weeks, and it's somewhat controversial. People struggle with this whole thing. Eternal security, once saved, always saved. Can you lose it? No, you cannot lose it. Can you forfeit it? Maybe. And it might not even be a conscious decision of, I'm going to turn my back on God. I don't like him anymore. I hate him. I don't even care if he exists. I just don't want to be a Christian. Again, the Calvinist says, well, you were never really saved. There are many of us says you were, but now you're not. I always say, like Pastor Chuck, we're eternally secure in Christ. Stick with Jesus and you don't have to worry about it. Amen. But, We've all known people like that. And you say, what happened to that person? They just seemed like they really loved the Lord. They were really had a strong faith, and now there's nothing. Well, you have to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you do that through your own personal time in the Word, your own personal prayer time, but you also do it in gatherings like this. Because it says in Ephesians chapter 4, God has given apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and evangelists for the equipping of the saints. So if you want to be an equipped saint, guess what? You have to sit under a pastor teacher. Not a perfect person, but one called by God, anointed by God, to feed the sheep, to feed the flock, to teach the scriptures, 
to promote growth. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We sharpen each other in our faith. We challenge each other in our faith. That only happens if you gather together. I guess you could Zoom it. I'm not a big Zoom guy. I like personal contact. And I wanted to even talk about this this morning. I don't know if we'll get through this one today. Maybe not. But there's a reason why. You know, some churches have programs for program's sake because, well, the more programs we have, the more people we can get because we're catering to all these different wants and needs and desires. So if you come in, do you guys have a you know, singles group? No? Okay, see you later. I don't really find singles groups in the Bible. You know, we have to have all these programs. So we have things that we feel like God has led us to do for the purpose of growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Women's Bible study, Tuesday night, Wednesday morning. Men's prayer, Tuesday night. Men's breakfast, once a month on Saturday morning. Koinonia groups, every other Sunday. And for a church our size, that's probably a pretty good schedule. We have Thursday night with Pastor Ted teaching over in the other building. And yet, the number of people who participate in those things is rarely small, fairly small compared to the size of the church. So I would challenge you with this. If all you do is come on Sunday, I'm glad to have you, praise God. But if you want to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you want to be an equipped believer, and by the way, whether you like it or not, you are an end times believer. Because this is where God has put you. Hello. Whether you like it or not, God has put you in the end times. Which is a very significant place to be. And you need to be ready. What the heck? What is that? Is it me? Doesn't usually do that. Yeah. Take advantage of these opportunities. Well, if they had a singles group, I'd go. You know, we have a lot of single people in this church. Almost any gathering is almost a singles group, okay? And we even have uh, once a month on Saturday morning, James. It's once a month, right, James, the uh, Young at Heart group? Yeah. And you say, well, why isn't it every week? Well, if more people start coming, James might consider doing it every week, you know. But we're not going to just do programs for programs' sake. Our goal is to build up the body of Christ. And one of my core part of my vision when we started this church, and I just mentioned last week our 35th anniversary, one of my core visions was to do what Jesus told the apostles to do in Matthew 28, to make disciples. Here's the deal, guys. Christians are born, right? You must be born again. But disciples are... This is irritating. It's since you guys changed the speakers. Yep, you ruined me. Christians are born. Disciples are made. You can't make a disciple out of someone unless they want to be discipled okay the fact that you're here today tells me you want to be discipled 
And that's always been part of my vision. To make disciples, because that's what Jesus commissioned us to do. Because again, if you take a baby that's been born and you just leave it lying there and you don't feed it and you don't nurture it, it's going to die. Right? All right, I'm pretty sure we're not going to make it. We might. Who knows? Let's move on. He who believes in me. So we need to qualify that. Believes in the, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus that is described in the Bible, the Jesus that he describes himself as. We start with acknowledge him as Lord and Savior. I talked about that. And we go from there. And then 2 Timothy 2.15. Here it is. Study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Again, could you lay your Bible down, never pick it up again and still be saved? Yeah. But we are exhorted at the very least, if not outright commanded by the Apostle Paul. We know he's writing to Timothy, but it applies to every believer. Study to show thyself. I'm reading from the King James, not the New King James, Old King James, because I like it better here. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. How would that manifest itself? Well, maybe you might be ashamed because you have an opportunity to share the Lord with somebody and you don't know what to say. You don't have any scriptures at hand that you've memorized. Uh, you're embarrassed. You can't uh, properly um, describe and clarify your faith to them. But we're to study to show ourselves approved, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So we start, yes, with acknowledging him as Lord and Savior. We don't know everything. We don't understand everything. But as we do that, then we will grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, everyone who believes in me has everlasting or eternal life. And notice he doesn't say, um, will someday have it. He says, has it. The moment we become a genuine conversion, we, we have a genuine conversion experience with God by receiving His Son as our Lord and Savior. We become eternal regardless of the fact that we currently dwell in mortal, perishable bodies just like we talked about already. Remember this story as Jesus is hanging on the cross. Luke 23, 39 through 43. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed Him saying, If you're the Christ, save yourself and us. That's just like the people that we've met, we've heard about, we know that just, okay, God, if you're real, just zap me with a lightning bolt or do something, do this, do that. Show yourself, prove yourself. This guy's mocking Jesus. But the other answering rebuked the first thief, saying, do you not even fear God? Seeing you are under the same condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Wow. That's an incredible insight coming from this guy who's in the throes of death. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
What did this guy do? He simply put his faith, his belief, his trust in Jesus Christ. He who believes in me has everlasting life. The moment the thief acknowledged Jesus as Lord, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, even though he was at death's door, he became eternal. Now, just to be clear, I want to clarify something here. All human beings are eternal in that we are all created in God's image and have an eternal spirit. However, apart from God and His Son, the only eternity that any human being can look forward to is eternal death. I've talked about it many times. Eternal death, it's an eternal state of consciousness, but it's not life. It's not called eternal life. It's called eternal death, but you're conscious, you're aware. That's why it's torment. It's something that no human being should want. Eternal life is found only in Christ. So when I say the moment we are born again, we have a conversion experience, we become eternal, we become eternal in living, eternal life. Not, we've passed from death to life, but both conditions are eternal and they are conscious. Think about that. A lot of people are hoping and banking on the, what they believe. If I'm wrong and you Christians are right, at least when I go to hell, I'll have some peace and quiet. We're going to party down there. You ever heard that one? I'll see you in hell. Yes, you will, and we're going to have a party. Yeah, yeah there's going to be a weenie roast, and you are the weenie, okay? <laughs> Sorry. The truth is the truth, okay? Verse 48. Wow, we're, we're making some progress. I am the bread of life. Jesus says this three times in this chapter of John, and only in John 6 is this particular statement recorded. I am the bread of life. As we discussed previously, in the physical realm, bread was and is considered the very staple of sustaining life. In the spiritual realm, Jesus is our sustenance, the one who gives us eternal life. If we do not take him in, just as those, you know, you remember the old Marie Antoinette thing, which I've read, actually she didn't really even say, but they always quote her saying, let them eat cake. Why did she say that? Because the people were crying out, we have no bread. We have no bread. Well, let them eat cake then. Because bread is considered throughout history past to be the basic fundamental staple of life. If you don't have money for any other kind of food, the idea is that bread is your basic sustenance. And if we don't take in Jesus as our bread of life, we will not live. You know, I was thinking about this as I was studying, and as a young boy, and again, I keep coming back to this importance of reaching the children, all it took was a seed implanted in my heart and mind by my Sunday school teachers to bring me to faith in God and in His Son, Jesus. The one or ones who teach us first are the ones we're most likely to believe. Do you know that? So what if a child has gone through a large portion of their early life with no one ever telling them about God, no one ever telling them about Jesus, 
the ones who teach us first. So if the per first person to teach a child is someone who's a liar, a thief, a murderer, a drug addict, an alcoholic, and that's what they're being taught to be. An atheist, an agnostic. We don't believe in God in this house. That's a fairy tale. That's a bunch of baloney. Don't even bring it up. What's going to happen to that child? Fortunately for me, that wasn't the case. The older one gets, the harder the heart becomes and the more difficult it is for God's truth to penetrate. You know it. You've seen it. If you're here today and you got saved as an adult, praise God, you are a miracle. But even statistically, they've done studies on this and proved by the time a person reaches age 70, which is the biblically appointed length of years on the earth, for those of us that have gotten there or passed it, praise God. <laughs> by 70, in the natural, statistically, not accounting for the fact that with God all things are possible, at 70 years of age, there's a 0% chance of somebody becoming a born-again Christian. Do you know that? Isn't that crazy? But it's true. Again, God makes the rules. God can break the rules. And yes, people do get saved at 70 and beyond, but it's a minute number, folks. It's a minute number. Today, hearts are becoming more and more hardened at younger and younger ages due to the corruption and pollution of the world is funneling into our children through TV, movies, the Internet, godless adults, and the public education system. Ed talked about that during the announcements. Our public education system has gone from the early days of being actually biblically based. McGuffey Reader, a biblically based book teaching children to read, actually even using the Bible in school. We went from a pro-Christian, pro-God agenda in the public school systems to kind of a neutral one to now it's very anti-God and very pro-Satan. After school Satan clubs, LGBTQ, transgender, you name it. It's all satanic, it's all demonic, and it's all there in the public school system. So today the children's hearts, are, in fact, well, kids go to school earlier and earlier. I didn't even get to go to kindergarten because in Arizona, believe it or not, in 1959, we did not have public kindergarten, only private. And I guess my mom missed the boat and couldn't get me in. So I started school in the first grade. Today, kids are starting, while they're going to daycare, preschool, three years old and younger, they're getting a hold of our kids at an earlier and earlier age. And a lot of these child care centers are new age, Montessori and so forth. And so the children's hearts are becoming hardened earlier and earlier. And the problem is this. That's why it's crucial and critical that we expose our children to the gospel as early as possible. The problem is this. If the hearts of the parents are hardened to the gospel, and many today, the younger and younger generations, just like in ancient Israel, when the parents did not hand down the faith to their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, what happened? The people turned away unto idolatry, right? If the hearts of the parents are hardened to the gospel, how do we get it to the kids? 
My mother was a cynical non-believer, according to my aunt, Frida, who's a godly woman, now 95 years old, still serving in her church in Payson, Arizona. My mother received the Lord before she passed. I hope that's the case. But growing up, she was a cynical non-believer. My father was a backslidden Christian, but he would take us, myself, my younger brother, sister, drop us off at Sunday school, and if not, then my grandmother, one of my aunts, would see that we got to church. That's how I got saved. Somebody cared enough to get me to church from the time I was three or four years old, and before the world could pollute my heart and harden my heart, Jesus came into my heart, and the world couldn't touch me. Now, when I say couldn't touch me, there are a few things along the way, as you might imagine. But there was never a time when I didn't believe in God there was never a time when I wasn't convicted when I did sin and I would pray to God. There was never a time when I didn't believe in Him. And thank God for that. I had something else to say and I can't remember what it was. Whatever it takes, folks, We have to make every effort. And there's a reason why, statistically, fewer and fewer people are going to church. And the younger the, the, the group, the, le the less and less are going. As you go from oldest part of the population to the youngest, it, 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 as you go down the ladder from oldest to youngest, fewer and fewer people are going to church. Fewer and fewer people are believing in God. More and more people are turning to the occult, the new age, and all that other stuff. And there's a reason for that. It's, the reason is what I've just talked to you about. The hardening of the hearts at an earlier and earlier age. And then the lack of exposure of our young people, our children, to the gospel of Christ. We have to make every effort. We have to make every effort to see that our children meet Jesus before it's too late. And that's one of the reasons, if not the most important reason, that we have a school called Calvary Christian Academy. And I'm very happy to say that Pastor Ed, Ted Trujillo is now our Bible teacher and has been for several months. And he's doing an amazing job. All right, we're going to have to finish this next week. Let's stand. <clears throat> I guess I have one more thing to say. While there is a decline in belief in God, a decline in church attendance... We have a, a new, what is a fairly new phenomenon in America, and that's called the megachurch, and there are some good ones. Pastor Chuck Smith was one of the first men in America, I would say, to pastor a megachurch. He never tried to make it one. God did it. But then they began to develop programs and techniques on how to build a megachurch. People started doing that. But um, 
someone near near and dear to me recently went to one of the local megachurches because they were trying to find a place to attend to worship and um, they were totally appalled by what they experienced. That there wasn't one Bible verse used in the whole service. And um, I guess I won't elaborate beyond that because I might give it away. But this person and their family all have a pretty strong background as believers, are pretty well taught in the scriptures, and they were just, they walked out basically, they couldn't handle it. But these are the kind of churches the enemy loves to see people go to because their kids aren't going to get what they need to get in order to really build a walk with the Lord. It's all fluff. It's all whipped cream and frosting. There's no depth. I'll tell you one thing. We have a small Sunday school, but our kids are getting the truth. They're getting the gospel. They are being equipped, and I praise God for that. But I challenge you this morning. Ask God how you can be a part of rescuing. And that was my wife's vision when we started the school in 1996. It was actually, I think, a year or two before she'd had a dream. And there were all these puppies, and they were down in one of those uh, sewer drains that you see around the corner. And they were down, and she was pulling them out of the sewer. And God spoke to her and said she, he wanted her to start our school to rescue the children who were down in the sewer. Okay? So, let's... Yeah, I had very little to do with, the, with launching the school. That was my wife's doing. She's the one behind it. She's an amazing woman. Let's bow our heads. If you have a prayer request this morning, please raise your hand. Father God, you see each hand. You know each person. Lord, we're so thankful that you know us inside and out, upside and down, better than we know ourselves. Lord, you know what we need even more than we know what we need. But I do lift up, Father, first those who are struggling with health issues. Lord, it can be very challenging. We want to uh, give ourselves over to you in service, to serve you, to follow you, to live for you, to be a witness. And Lord, sometimes those health issues can get in the way. So we humbly uh, beseech you. We come humbly before your throne of grace and boldly in Christ, for healing, Lord, whatever the condition might be, whether it's pneumonia, RSV, COVID, um, disease X, (laughs) Lord, cancer, Lord, there are so many afflictions because our bodies are vulnerable, they're cursed by sin, we are mortal, but we thank you that we can look forward to a body that will never die again, a new, imperishable, incorruptible, eternal body, but in the meantime, Father, We have to live in these mortal bodies, so we ask that you would bless your people with healing. Lord, some have broken bones that are refusing to heal. We pray that you would heal those. Lord, whatever the condition is, whether it's the heart, the lungs, the kidneys, the liver, Lord, you know every inch of us. Lord, joint pain, knee pain, hip pain, back pain. Lord, there's so many things that can begin to go wrong in our bodies as we get older. Injuries. 
Lord, we lift it all up to you and pray for your gracious, merciful healing to be poured out on your people, Father, and help us to receive that. Lord, impart to us the faith that we need to trust you and believe you for healing, whether it be physical or mental and emotional, Lord, for those struggling with anxiety, depression, fear, worry, doubt, unbelief, uh, impure thoughts. Uh, Help us to take every thought captive to you, Lord. We ask you to cleanse our hearts and minds and deliver us from anxiety, stress. Lord, just take it from us. Help us to yield ourselves over to you and receive that peace that passes all understanding. We also pray for healing in relationships, whether it be a marriage, Lord, a friendship, a co-worker, a neighbor. In every arena of life, we encounter difficulties in relationship. We need your help. We pray that you would bring restoration, healing, reconciliation, and those relationships of our lives that are damaged, especially marriages, Father. We know the enemy would like to tear down and destroy Marriages, especially believers, one of his prime targets, Lord, help us to repent of those things we need to repent of, uh, to take this, the um, log out of our own eye before we try to remove the splinter from our spouse. Lord, humble us, we pray, and help us to be those who promote healing, reconciliation, and restoration. We ask you to, to just heal relationships, Lord, so important. Finally, Lord, we pray for economic issues, provision. Lord, we're living in challenging times. Everything's getting more and more expensive. Our economy seems to be going downhill. We thank you that you're our provider. We ask you to give us wisdom and guidance on how to best manage our resources, and we pray where they fall short, that you will provide for us, that you give us hope, you give us faith, you give us endurance and patience and trust, and help us to help each other, Father. And we thank you, God, for being who you are, for calling us to yourself, revealing yourself to us as the bread of life, Lord Jesus. Help us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Father, we pray in his name. Amen.